to this episode of International Consulting Podcast. My guest today is Loretta Bruning, right? Yes. <laughs> and you are um, a book writer. Yes. A, a, former, uh, a former teacher in international management. Yes, college professor. College professor. <laughs> and you now focus on writing books that are related to the uh, animal brain yes and the uh, correlation with the human brain yes and the brain chemicals that make us feel good that we have inherited from animals okay that's very interesting and today we will actually uh, talk about why travel makes us happy and yes how does the animal brain or what can the animal brain teach us about happiness in, uh, in traveling and uh, the habit of traveling? Yes. Okay, perfect. So I am myself, uh, what I would say, a big traveler. I had done a year-long world tour. I have been on more than 600 uh, flights. I have been a digital nomad for five or six years now. So does it mean that it's a, it's a habit coming from uh, my animal <laughs> brain? Or? Uh, yes, it's a habit. Um, so the brain learns from experience. Um, we are not born hardwired like um, a lizard leaves home as soon as it's born because it's hardwired with all of the survival behaviors it needs. Humans have a longer childhood than any animal because our brain is wired from experience. So anything that felt good in your past wires you to repeat that behavior and anything that felt bad in your past wires you to avoid that behavior and that's how the animal brain is designed to work. So when I was young, I had a great feeling from traveling and I had bad feelings from many other things. So that taught my brain, traveling is the way to feel good in the same way that if you give a monkey a banana, then it learns that a banana is the way to feel good. So your experience, of course, were different and so you wired in your own specific example of this and everyone listening has wired in their specific, but what we all have in common is what makes us feel good depends on these certain brain chemicals. Should I explain them? Yes, please. Yeah, so <laughs> dopamine is the main brain chemical that motivates us and in, the world of our ancestors, they had to look for food all the time. So seeking stimulates the good feeling of dopamine. So when you look around for something and you're like, there, there's food. That's what our ancestors were always looking for, food. And they would get happy when they found it because dopamine was released because in the past their brain had learned that food relieves hunger. And if you see something green in the distance, you get more and more dopamine when you approach it. So that good feeling of seeking or foraging is something that we all look for. And in the modern world, it's easy to find food. So we all look for other ways to get that feeling. And travel is a great way to get it. People have all different ways of seeking, but travel, has no calories. <laughs> um, uh, it, 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 you know, it's not 
well, it's not bad for your body necessarily. Um, so, uh, so when you travel, you're looking at new inputs. And I think that's very much stimulating dopamine. So uh, are you, if I understand well, are you saying that travel is like an addiction? Um, kind of? Uh, for some people, uh, so here's the thing. An addiction is when you feel bad, what do you think of to expect to feel better? So we all have, you know, like when, when a monkey is hungry, it looks for food, but it learns that food relieved the hunger. So when you were young, if you felt bad and you had a cigarette, then you learned, okay, cigarette will relieve the bad feeling. Maybe some people went to a party. Other people played a video game. So it's the expectation, this will make me feel good. And then every time I feel bad, I go to that. So that's the way I look at it. So a person may have a, a number of addictions and they may not be addicted to travel. They may only travel once a year and have other addictions while they're home. So it's very individual depending on our own experience. Okay, and are there other chemicals besides? Yes, yes, exactly. So the other chemicals, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. So um, oxytocin is the chemical that is often called the love hormone or the bonding hormone. And it causes um, social relations, social trust. And in animals, it causes herd behavior. So our ancestors lived in a tribe because it was safe. And when they left the tribe, they felt like they would be killed. And it was not safe to be alone. So today, we have many different ways of managing that experience. Some people want to be with a group all the time and they feel unsafe when they're not with a group. Other people, they like to be alone, but their animal brain maybe feels unsafe if you're alone 100% of the time. So they have their strategies for giving their inner mammal the feeling that it's with a herd. And there are many ways to do that. And traveling is one way because when you travel, especially if you're a digital nomad and you connect to the community of an other digital nomad. So wherever you go, you find new people, they're nice to you, but you don't have to carry their problems. Whereas at home, when you have this tribe, then you have to take the weight of their problems. I know this very well, <laughs> so this is it. And there are many ways to do that. So many people who do not travel, they go to a bar and they walk in the bar and they expect people to be nice to them. Uh, other people, they want to tell someone their problems. They want to connect around problems. Other people do not want to connect around problems. So whatever worked for you when you were young, that's the way that you try to stimulate the good feeling of social trust. Okay, so is it always coming from childhood or can you develop these habits later on? Yes, you can. Maybe you read my book. 
Um, so you can develop them later on, but it's hard because the old pathways are extremely well developed. And to build a new pathway in adulthood, it takes a huge amount of repetition. And people often don't want to do the repetition. So when you're young, you have very high neuroplasticity. And that means you just hear something once and you build a connection and then you know it. And if you've ever been around a child learning language, you know children learn language easily. And that's because of a chemical called myelin. And we have a huge amount of myelin until we're two years old. So you don't have to feel old now because everybody over two has, um, but then it peaks again in puberty. And the reason for that is in the animal world, animals move to a new location before they mate to avoid inbreeding. And myelin helps them learn new information. So if you imagine our ancestors moved to a new tribe in puberty for marriage and they had to learn a new language and new customs and new geography. And so um, whatever made you happy when you were a teenager is usually the big thing. After that, many people are unhappy with the pathways they have and they want to rewire them. And that is the topic of all of my books is how to do that. And as I said, the simple answer is repetition, but it's not fun. So the way to do that is to target the new circuit that you want to have very specifically so that you can repeat it and then reward yourself for repeating it. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's a lot of information. Actually, in your books, are you talking about uh, about uh, traveling? Uh, about how? Uh... Oh, good question. Um, in my books, I do not talk a lot about travel, um, but that was always my personal addiction. That was what always um, kept me going um, until now. <laughs> and even now, even now, I mean, it's still the thing I think about, like, wow, how can I travel? Um, uh, I use some individual examples of travel, but in my books, I try to use universal examples, which is, of course, complicated because if our circuits are built from individual experience, it's harder to have universal experiences. But that's what my books focus on. But um, I should tell you what my personal example was. Uh, um, when I was young, I had a rather unhappy family, as many people do. And I had a lot of unhappiness and looked for a way to relieve it. Fortunately, I was not exposed to a lot of bad habits. Um, and I had one good thing that fell, just fell from the sky for me. So my parents did not leave home a lot. But when I was a teenager, my father was given free trips by his employer. And he brought me on some of the trips. And so, and even before he brought me, 
I, well, I always say, like, I was 10 years old and my parents went to Japan and China. And like, these were people who never went anywhere. And now they're coming back from Japan and China and then, and they went to Europe. And it was a certain excitement. Another thing, every brain has what's called mirror neurons. We mirror other people. And when we do that, we feel excited about whatever they're excited about. So I never saw my parents get excited, except for, not for anything good anyway, but, um, but for travel, it was a healthy way that I had in my own little world to get excited. So I think that's how I got addicted. Now, then I got more addicted when I was a teenager because um, I had, let's say I had problems fitting in and I found my own way. I had this dream of going to Paris. I thought Paris was the, the centre du monde um, because um, I studied French when I was in school and in your French textbook, you always have little stories about Paris. So it was always presented as if it were Disneyland, okay? So when I was 16, I got the idea that I would earn money and go to Paris. And I did it. So all through high school, every day I went to work after school, I earned money all, and um, as the day after, a week after I graduated, I got on a plane and went to Paris. I studied at the Sorbonne um, just for one month. And um, then I traveled all around. But the interesting thing is that my parents did not want me to go. So that was the big um, pressure of getting them to agree to let me go. And so was it a good experience overall to go to Paris? Did it lead you to keep traveling? Good question. Um, each person, you know, the addiction is, I think, very specific. So for me, it was partly the planning, you know, it was like two years of planning of this trip. So I think the planning of it was as big of a factor as the trip. So, um, and maybe that's how I got a PhD because I was able to take on a very distant goal and feel relaxed because then I don't have to worry about everything else because I'm only worried about, I have this goal to focus on. So I think that was a big part of what I learned. But yes, I did because then I went, what did I do the next year? I came home, I went to college and what did I do? I got a job after school and spent all my time planning a trip for the next summer and the next and the next and the next. And then like an addict, soon Europe wasn't enough. So I needed to go to Africa Asia, communist countries. So, um, but I was never a danger addict. You know, I, I didn't want to do things that were really dangerous. I always drew the line. Like even when I was 17, I was not going to be sleeping with a lot of strangers in parks, you know. <laughs> but then is the pleasure more in the planning or in the execution? Uh, it's very individual. So it's whatever 
that person is having that bad moment and then something so good happens and that tells your brain, the next time you feel bad, do this. So everyone can trace their own life and see how it works. Like I'll give you examples of people who are very different from me. So when I travel, I don't want to spend a lot of money because I want to be able to travel more. But for many people, when they travel, they spend a lot of money and that's their way of saying, for two years, I'm going to feel like a rich person. And I don't enjoy that at all. You know, I go to an expensive hotel and I think it looks boring. Why would I spend, you know, a week's budget and one night just to be in this boring place? I don't, so, and I don't like having people waiting on me, you know, but some people love that. Mm -hmm. So the other thing, my husband and I go to Hawaii. We don't like beaches, you know, so we, we like to be in a rainforest. So some people like um, to wear a bikini, they're focused on their appearance and they associate travel with that. Um, some people like adventure sports. So it's very individual. Oh, and also for me, I like to speak foreign languages. Mm -hmm. So I always want to go to a place where I can um, enjoy a foreign language. So it's very, it's very individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and I, I should add, let me say that the, the romance of travel that we have in books from hundreds of years ago that, you know, young person wants to leave home and go travel and the tradition of, you know, for, for, for um, English speaking world, of um, 200 years ago, many of the famous writers went to Italy. Mm -hmm. When they went to Italy, you could have alcohol at a very low price and prostitutes at a very low price. And I think that was a huge part of it. And nobody says that, but I think it was a huge part of that core of travel. And some of you today may admit <laughs> that that is a big factor. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I am not sure anymore about cheap alcohol. <laughs> That's, yeah, it, mm. well, it depends what country. I just got, I did a podcast with um, Tomas Lorovincius, and he sent me the 50 best places for digital nomads this year. And they were all places with cheap alcohol. Not all, but um, a lot of them were places with cheap alcohol. <laughs> yeah, well, usually cheap alcohol nowadays goes also with cheap um, cost of life. Exactly, exactly. Mostly yes. because everything is more or less uh, exported, imported everywhere. So we have access to a large range of, uh, of products anywhere we are. Yes. But a bar can have probably lower prices um, because the rent is lower. Mm -hmm. So there's one more happy chemical that I should tell you about because it's huge. So serotonin in monkeys, it was discovered in the 1980s. So first, um, monkeys are very competitive with each other. And that was studied for 100 years. 
and no one talks about it anymore because all of the, the academic psychology world has become socialist and they want to say that animals are all egalitarian and altruistic. But for a hundred years before that, it was clear that animals were extremely competitive and all the books are there. I've collected the books and a chemical serotonin, which we hear of from antidepressants is released when an animal pushes itself higher than another animal and gets the one up position. It's called social dominance in the biology research that is now no longer acceptable. So when a human feels more powerful, more important than another person, they get a little bit of serotonin and it feels great, but our body metabolizes these chemicals very quickly. So anytime you feel bad, uh, I'm sorry, anytime you feel good, the good feeling is gone in a few minutes and then you need to do something to get more, which is why everyone has a treadmill feeling because you just have to keep stimulating those chemicals. So how do you get serotonin when you travel? The simple answer is that social comparison mm -hmm. is a mental habit in everyone. And we all do it in ways that we learn from our past. So for many people, when they are home in the place they grew up in, they're always comparing and feeling one down and they feel sad about being in the one down position and they blame others. They blame the world because they don't understand that their monkey brain is putting them in the one down position because they learned it from their family. They learned it from their friends. And when they travel, they can relieve that feeling of being in the one down position. And I think it's very big. And again, one person may do it by staying in a five-star hotel. And another person may do it by saying, I'm free. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have any social obligations, right? <laughs> and I have to tell you, um, my daughter, I try not to um, overdo it with my kids, but, um, I, you know, in public, but you, my daughter goes to fine dining restaurants that she cannot afford when she travels. And I have, um, I have not the financial pressure that she has, but I never went to one in my whole life. And my husband does not like to spend money on food. And uh, for me, I like, um, I came from a family where everyone was obese. So I like his not making food a big deal. But because my kids spend more money on food than me, so I thought I would try it. So when I go to um, a city with low prices, I went to one of those restaurants where there's nine courses, but every course you just get like something mm -hmm. little. It's like a sculpture, you know? Yeah. So, so that's, that's a highlight, you know, then you take pictures of everything. 
So the point is that when people travel, they do something memorable and exciting that they would not have done at home. So you are actually mentioning uh, diner experience, but for example, like extreme sports is also is a similar kind of uh, reward for the brain. Yes, exactly. For example, may I like to go rafting in another country, right? Whitewater rafting. So it is a. Yes. Yes, and many people could do it at home, but they don't do it at home. So they associate travel with adventure. Yes. And then others do the opposite. When they travel, they go to the bar, they drink mm -hmm. the whole time. They drink during the day that they would not do at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, like the all-inclusive uh, weeks where you just stay at a hotel for, if you want to. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, just lay down on, <laughs> on the deck. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> yes. And, and some people, when they travel, they talk to strangers. And when they're home, they would not talk to strangers. So that's an oxytocin thing. Social trust feels good. And when you're at home, if you talk to a stranger, you may think that the person is being critical of you. Oh, mm -hmm. why are they talking to me? But when you travel, you stop worrying about that. So um, you, uh, you do that. You, you just enjoy talking to people. But also because when you are abroad, actually, if it goes bad, you know, you know that you will never see them again. So yes, that's, that's a very good... They will not know your neighbor, your friend. Yeah, your family, your... yeah, yeah. Good. There is more distance and it's probably easier to... Yes, yes. To go through the barrier. So, yeah, so there's different kinds of social trust. There's long-term social trust and short-term social trust. So if I go to a new country and I could, or like, let's say I'm sitting on a plane and I talk to this person and I tell them things that I haven't told anybody, mm -hmm. but I will never see them again. So that kind of social trust may feel good, but if I have a problem, that person is never going to help me. So, so, so we have an animal brain and that's what I got so excited to study how animals build social trust so that when they have a problem and a lion attacks them, who will come to help them? And they, um, they are very serious about building trust bonds for an emergency. Okay. Okay. So actually, are all travels good for these uh, chemicals? Are, are they all bringing as good chemicals? Good question. So um, many people have bad travel experiences and many people are afraid to travel. So many of my friends, they, I, it, it shocks me. I don't even enjoy talking to, about travel with them because all they do is complain. I can't even believe it. You know, like mm -hmm. they, this, like every single step of the trip and they only complain. Whereas with me, the minute I get to the airport, I'm so happy, you know? So everybody is so wired by their past experience. And these people who are worried about something that could go wrong or they like to criticize. And when they travel, they criticize the hotel, they criticize the food. 
you know, it's just, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what I have to say about quarantine is everybody has the circuits they have and they just keep repeating themselves, whatever they were before, that's who they are now, you know. So, so actually, if we want, for example, to find the right travel partner, we should ask uh, potential travel partners about their past? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's like, um, go on a day trip with this person <laughs> and see how it is on the day trip. Yeah, uh, very, very interesting. Yeah, when, um, when I, I had um, a first husband and we did not travel at all. Um, he never wanted to travel. And then when I met my new husband, we started traveling all the time. But we are so different. And it's ironic that um, it's, it's like, it's totally different experience for him. He likes different things. He gets excited about different things. Um, but it overlaps enough that we can we both want to go and we can both find things we enjoy and we we overlap in the things that matter like how much do we spend this versus that so it's amazing but otherwise he's totally different i'll give you a simple example um so he loved museums and when he was young he studied art history I mean, he's, you know, he just studies, every, he's very um, factual person. So he likes facts. Mm -hmm. So we go to an art museum and he has the art history view. And I'm interested in the stroke, the painting strokes, like how is the painting to look at the strokes. And so it's totally different. Over time, we went to so many museums. I have seen like every Van Gogh. I do not want to see another Van Gogh. So <laughs> when he go, when we travel now, I go to cafe and meet readers from my books of of my books, and he goes to more museums. So just another example of people can have a different experience, but it's fine. The other thing, we so we're older now. When we travel, we get up, we walk all day, and by six o'clock, I'm practically passing out, and we go to bed early. And many people, you know, we bring something to watch, we lie in bed with our iPad and watch, and then we fall asleep early, or, and we read. But many people, of course, just travel for the nightlife, so it's just very individual. And also, we, you know, we love to walk all day. Many people want to take a taxi or, you know, Uber, take an Uber. But um, if you have a person who agrees on the fundamentals, don't expect someone who will agree on everything because they never will. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you have actually tips to, to get this happiness even when not traveling? So, for example, in the planning, in uh, looking forward to uh, future hypothetical travel? Yes. So, um, this is the subject of all of my books. So, my introductory book is called Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. So, the idea is, first, 
understand how you are already stimulating chemical, these chemicals. And then if you have a habit you don't like, you can target a new way to stimulate that chemical. The simple way to stimulate dopamine is to have a goal, um, a healthy goal. Like I always say, a goal is to find a parking spot near a bar that's open late at night. So that, you know, <laughs> is for many people, that's their goal, right? Um, so then you need to create a new goal. And it doesn't have to be change the world. In fact, change the world is often an excuse for not having a real action goal because then you can blame the world for not changing. Now, if you have a big goal, your brain is not going to give you dopamine unless you actually get closer. So you need a realistic goal. But since life is uncertain, you cannot predict every day that you will get closer to your goal. So I always say that you need to have three goals, a short run goal, a long run goal, and a middle term goal, so that you can always be progressing on one or another. And so for me right now, you know, I always need some trip to plan so that whenever I'm in a bad mood, I can start planning that trip because I have control over it. So that's what makes us happy is you have steps toward a goal that you can control instead of blaming the world. So in quarantine, so, you know, every time I tried to plan a trip, something would go wrong. Like you said, they won't let you in. They won't let you back. But I kept finding a way. A few times I got disappointed. Um, and then I was very frustrated because, see, I was focused on Hawaii. Um, and since I'm in California, but then Hawaii doesn't want us. Um, <laughs> so, and then I was invited to speak in Moscow. And they kept inviting me. And I was not sure it was safe. And then... One day I saw Vladimir Putin wearing a full hazmat suit. <laughs> and so Russia finally got the, the, the fear, I guess. Mm -hmm. So now I'm so bored. Now I'm willing to go to Russia, but now they have the fear. <laughs> um, uh, but um, I'm traveling within the United States. So first, by the time I felt it was safe to do this, um, all of the rural parts of the United States were extremely hot. And I live in a cool place in California and I did not want to go to an extremely hot place. So, so but anyway, I'm going to Idaho, um, leaving on Monday. <laughs> oh, okay. So planning that trip has kept me sane for the last month. But it's not a very planned trip. It's, it's less planned than usual because it's sort of hot there. <laughs> so I'm going to wait and see what the weather is. Um, and it's not my most fun place in the world. Um, but at least um, going on YouTube and watching videos of a place I want to go to is fun. Okay, so it's kind of a replacement for the pleasure that we usually get from actually doing, uh, doing this, right? Yes, and that's the dopamine thing. So if a person is training to run a race, you're doing hard work when you train, but your dopamine is 
is running because you expect a reward. So anytime you expect a reward. And also many digital nomads are um, having a career goal and lowering your cost of living is the way to reach a career goal. So that excitement about re reaching, creating something, reaching a distant goal, that's all dopamine. Okay, <laughs> that was very, very interesting. Good, good. So, so actually, before, uh, before we, we stop the record, maybe you, you want to tell us which uh, book we should read? Which yes, book? great. Um, so, as I mentioned, my introductory book is Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. And um, it's uh, all information is at my website, um, innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And I also have free videos and podcasts and lots of uh, free blog posts and information. And I have information in French, Spanish, and German. And um, the book is translated into Russian. Um, it was in Chinese, the Chinese disappeared. Um, and in French, it's called Les Hormones du Bonheur en Lumière. It's, um, it's a different uh, publisher. Okay, well, I will surely uh, share the links uh, with the video so everybody can, uh, can find out uh, your books. So it has been very interesting to, to talk with you. So thank you very much. And uh, surely I read your book. Thank you, Rita. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. It was very interesting. A lot of information. Thank you.